Welcome back to another episode of the RAG podcast with me, Sean Anderson, the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media. This is the show where every single week I bring to you a story, um, an interview with one of the leaders of our global recruitment sector, often a recruitment owner, sometimes a supplier or an investor who have given their time to discuss what they've been up to, how they've built um, award-winning or, or industry-leading recruitment agencies around the world, and where do they feel our sector is heading post-COVID-19. Um, today, I'm super excited to be joined by Logan Nadu. Logan is the CEO and founder of Dartmouth Partners. Um, and along with an acquisition called Pure Search, they are sat around 180 recruiters um, working with over 400 organizations. And uh, yeah, they've been around since 2012. So there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about. So Logan, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thanks, Sean. How are you doing? I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. I can hear your children in the background, but they're yeah, not... Okay. Yeah. Just, just, just on, on clockwork, they decide to kick off. I know. Yeah, well, it is... Well, no, it's not. It's too late for... They should have had their lunch break. They should be into... They should be doing some work, but it is Easter holidays, isn't it? So Yeah, so they've been, they've been fed, fed water and sugar, and they're ready to keep going now for the next, next hour or so. I don't, I don't envy you, mate. I do not envy you. Well, look, thanks for taking your time. I, I've given you a little intro there, mate, but if you do me a favour, for the, for the listeners' benefit, tell us who you are and what you do in your own words. Sure. So I'll correct you with my surname. It's Logan Nidey. Sorry. Um, that's all right. Um, founder of Dartmouth Partners. Uh, we started the business in 2012, uh, have grown reasonably reasonably quickly across uh, financial services front office um, and acquired a business called Pure Search in September 2019. And as you said, total group headcount, 180 people, uh, will grow pretty aggressively this year and look to, to potentially make further acquisitions over, over the next few years. Wow. So... Yeah, let, let's just get into it. Let's get let's get into the story, right? You've um, you've been. I'm, I'm looking at your background, and you started off. Did you start your world in financial services, working in corporate finance, etc.? Yeah, so did, did did three years in corporate finance, um, three long years, um, and and realised really early on. Probably realised. I mean, literally within the first two weeks that I wasn't cut out for it. Mm. Um, and and that's a pretty fine experience. I had to stay a year in my first place. I had, had golden handcuffs. Uh, in my first job, moved to PwC, uh, spent two years there, a bit feeling out of my depth uh, and not really enjoying it, and, and, and then entered the happy world of recruitment. So, how did that happen? How do you go from yeah working in a in a in a corporate finance organisation to joining a recruitment business? What happened there? Um, I mean, it was, I mean, like like most people, fell into the, the industry. But back in two thousand and four, when I was leading corporate finance, um, flexible working wasn't wasn't was was very different to how we do it today. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to do, I was thinking about, I was thinking about becoming a vicar, funnily enough. Um, and so, so, yeah, I was incredibly shy. One of the, one of the things that the church I went to said to me, he said, you, you probably need to, uh, get a bit more confident, met a bunch of recruiters. One of the guys offered me a job, said you can leave early on Thursday to go to church, which sounded great to me. Um, and I joined this eight, eight person recruitment business that had gone through two pre-packs and was falling, falling apart as I joined it. Um, but they offered me flexible working, so I said yes. Wow. So who, what was the business called? It was a firm called the Oxbridge Group. The Oxbridge Group. Okay. Yeah. And what were you recruiting specifically? Uh, I, I, I recruited what I knew, so recruited yeah. financiers. So I, placed, I basically placed a bunch of my ex-colleagues into, into other, other M&A houses, um, spent a year there, um, uh, and, and then left to start on my own. So, yeah, I always... 
I always envy people that say that. Yeah, I just went into recruiting what I knew because I, I went from being a school teacher in 2012. So in no 2011 to recruiting technology professionals into the Australian government. And I was like, <laughs> it couldn't have got weird. It couldn't have got weirder for me. I was like, and I'd never even had a laptop really until I was like uni student. So when when I was talking, when people were trying to explain applications versus infrastructure pre i pre iPhone, I didn't even know what an app was. I was just like. Yeah, this isn't working for me. I mean, I ended up doing well and, and I stayed in that technology space, but I could imagine I'd hit the ground running a lot faster if I'd have understood it. So you literally, how did you find, like you said, you were shy though. How did you find the outgoing nature of the roles, having to, you know, proactively outreach to people and, and use your communication skills as the as the primary focus? Um, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you, recruitment gets a lot of knocks, but one of the things it has got, it's got some pretty inspirational people. And, and I've worked... You, you get the good and the bad in equal measure. And I worked with a guy that was genuinely inspirational. You know, could, could sell the proverbial ice to Eskimos. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the, the bad came with that, where you know probably had some slight, slightly underhand business ethics along the way. Um, but but you know, working working and seeing him for the first couple of months, you know, really helped me come out of my shell um, uh, a lot. Um, I guess alongside that, having had two jobs in the space of three years out of university, and then a third third one uh, and sort of pretty traditional Asian parents uh, I couldn't I couldn't afford to fail at, at the next one so that, <laughs> that kind of puts a puts, puts a fire under you to make sure it works works out did you do you remember the, that those moments where you made your first like outreach like cold calls and things and you're like did you question what the hell am I doing at one point I, 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 di I didn't but I remember being you know you're very shaky aren't you I mean mm. you, you know, the idea of making a cold call to anyone to sell anything if you haven't done a sales job before is is completely alien um, you know, what you realize, I mean, what you realize now is that, that, you know, you try and build rapport and have a conversation with someone and it's actually quite straightforward, conceptually quite straightforward and actually in practice quite straightforward, straight. And if you've got something good to offer, they're going to, they're going to buy from you. And if, if they're not interested, not interested and move on. Exactly. Don't take it personal. Do not take it personal. So you said a year into your recruitment career, you set your own firm up. Yeah. So did that for a year. I built pretty well in my first year. Um, and then January 2005, set up set up my first recruitment business at, at the ripe old age of 25. Well, that was the age I was when I got into the sector. I, I, was tw I just turned 25, or I was just turning 25 when I started in recruitment. So I can remember, I can remember that world. So the business back then was known as is it Cornell Cornell Partnership? Yeah, Cornell Partnership. So, um, what was that? Tell us, who, like, how did you start it? Who were you with? What paint the picture for us? Of what was that like back then? So January 2005, got a year's recruitment experience. We had two, two, two other co-founders who were broadly 15 years older than me um, that came from the other business. As I said, it was, it was, it was slightly falling apart. So um, three of us in a cavernous um, service office. And, and this, this service office was the size of a football pitch. And it was dirt mm. cheap. I think it was about £300 a month. What we didn't realise after we signed the lease is that most people had, had moved out because they, they, <laughs> they started pulling the building down. Um, literally pulling it down. Where was it? About two. It was. It was um, just off uh, Lower Thames Street, mm. um, on, on the river near where Jeffries are today. Mm. Um, and they've just turned them into luxury apartments now. But yeah. I think dust coming down and that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, it was it was really fun because you had a really massive office, three of us sitting there making making cold calls to to people trying to introduce this business that vaguely sounded like it'd been around for a while. Yeah, you. I mean, you you came up with it. I think it's a quite a uh, it's a really well, it's a strong name, Cornell Partnership. Where, where did that come from? Um, 
it was, it wasn't me. We were trying to think, we would, we, I mean, like, like everyone, we're trying to think of a name that sounds like it has some heritage to it and been around and, you know, partnership. You know, sound, you know, sound, sound, sounds like there's more than one of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Cornell, we, we nicked from one of the Ivy League universities and you'll see there's a theme in, in our business names along the way. Yeah, true. Yeah, I get that, get that. So, you know, the amount of people I've spoken, 200 episodes pretty much now, and I think 95% of them did something similar. They started off with couple of colleagues, couple of mates in a shed or a garage or a bedroom or a serviced office. And, and they, you know, it's amazing how you're able to just pick up the phone and make things happen. How did that, can you remember how the first year went? Like, cause you went from being, uh, you're still quite a green recruiter really after a year. I know you would have been a bit more mature and you'd worked in the sector. There was things on your side, but I still, I mean, I still couldn't imagine starting an agency after a year. So tell us how that first year actually went. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you really know what you're doing recruiting until you're about seven, eight years in. Mm. Um, but the first the first year, the thing that I had, I've got a you know, great work ethic, and that was hardwiring from, I guess, pre pre university from family, and then and then working working in corporate finance, um, and and the fear of failure just drive drive driving you onwards. So um, I remember you talking to uh, Tom Granville, you know, talking about eating eating baked beans for months and months yeah. on end. And I, I couldn't face that, so we had we had to make this work pretty quickly. Um, and I'd, I'd come off the back of my first year recruitment. I built about three fifty, three sixty, um, and then our first time, I think our first month or first two months, we did about hundred k. Wow! Um, and that for me, I remember thinking, well, we've got our costs covered now. We've got this cheap cheap office, um, no other no other costs. We've got our costs covered, and the and the rest we we can go. Um, and then I, I was always a pretty strong biller. Um, which was probably my, my downfall at the first business, but I built half a million in my, my second year recruitment, then a million in my third. Um, mm. And by, by year four, Is that contract or perm or both? All perm. All perm. Wow, that's a big deal. Uh, what was the average deal value back then? Yeah, it was, it was, it was scandalously small. I was probably about 12 to 15K. Um, so was, that's was, a hell of a lot of deals then to yeah, get to real, a million. It was, it was real volume, real, real volume. And the great, I mean, the great thing you remember that that, I mean, that was the go go days of, of banking, right? So, yeah. You have you have this market that was climbing, climbing like the clappers, um, and just one deal after another. Yeah, you know, you're not going to take the job. Okay, next one they're going to offer you. you know, <laughs> away, away you go. Wow, that sounds. So, what was your life like back then at 25, 26 years old? What were you? You know, was it? Were you relatively settled, or were you enjoying the fruits of being a business owner at that age? You're going, you're going into dark territory now. I was actually um, so. I mean, I, was, I probably fell into fell into work um, pretty, you know, pretty he head on. And actually, um, I, I got engaged uh, and, and not not married, but I got enge got engaged um, just before we set up the business, um, and uh, got disengaged uh, about about a year later because she just oh, said, "Look, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this kind of lifestyle. You I mean you, all you do is work, work." Um, so, so yeah, I mean, look, we, we worked we work really hard in the first couple of years to get it off the ground. It's it, trickier. I mean, yeah, like, I couldn't empathize with that. Literally, like, I met my, she's my ex now, my ex-wife. I, I met her when I was in recruitment at, like, my peak of billing, like, earning about £200,000. And she's like, you know, took her to Dubai on the first trip. And we did all sorts of stuff together. And she must have thought, this is great. And then a year later, I set up business and went back down to baked beans level <laughs> she 
she to be fair to her she she was great in that first year she just let me get on with it but it is not easy that you've got to sacrifice things right you've got to make some real sacrifices well you've mentioned the two guys with you were 15 years older in age is that were they were they 15 years older in recruitment as well did, did they have a lot of experience that you could lean on and they could support you yeah they did have a lot of they had a lot more experience i think i think i mean we talked about this previously but i think one of the things that you've got to work out is what you know really early on is what do you want to do with your business and, and do you have a shared vision um and i think we were you know all all okay recruiters but you know we were running it without without a real idea of what we were going to do with the business you know running it as a you know, sort of traditional lifestyle business we got to 30 people you know after you build a mill what are you going to do next try and do it again do it again what happens next so by the age of 30 I was kind of pretty pretty bored with the business. You know, I wanted to grow a really big business, um, and they 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 didn't. You know, fundamentally, we we're making one one and a half million pound profit a year, um, and like a lot of recruiters, they thought of it as like a cash cash machine, right? So, um, why are we going to why do we want to get it any bigger than this? Let's just pull the money out and go again the year after. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, I mean, you don't know what you don't know, but I knew that I was getting bored of doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and I, I so you were at, you were at about thirty people, were you, within five years? Yeah, we got to. I think we got to thirty people after yeah four or five years. You know, get the, get the sequencing right. So two thousand five, by probably about two thousand and two thousand nine, ten. And your role? What was your role in that? Were you still billing, or were you? I was still, or... I was still, still billing. I was. The, I mean, I, again, getting the model wrong. I was the main biller in the business. Um, you know, I was probably the one that did most of the infrastructure stuff around. Um, accounting, IT, you know, I was probably, I think being 15 years younger and at that point single, I could be the driving force in the business and, and that suited everyone to mm. let me get on with it. Um, I got married in 2019 um, and that obviously changed, changes things pretty, pretty dramatically. Mm. Um, and I got diagnosed with cancer actually on our, a day before our first, first, first wedding anniversary. So oh my, my wife was six months pregnant this time. So, you know, You've got a new new baby on, on its on its way, and, and was that was a year ago, or two years a year ago? No, that was, that was sorry, not two. I was talking about in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine, yeah, two thousand nine. Diagnosed with cancer in two thousand ten. So, oh my god! So you you did you have to take some time off to go through treatment? I think. Yeah, I had six months out. I had an operation. Had my radiotherapy. Um, was hopping in and out of hospital. Actually, in total, I probably only had a couple of weeks off, but I, I carried on. Going into the office after hospital, which which in retrospect was was really stupid, um, and I you know carried on billing because the company was 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 struggling without me. You know, um, how the hell? But let's just stop a sec. How the hell do you? I mean, I can only empathise. I actually got a scare last summer, and I'd had to go for like you know I had a lump and had it assessed and things like. That. They told me they thought it could be, and it ended up being a blood clot. It was random, but really made me you know think about things. How? How did you carry on working when you're going through, when you've got, you know, you're recently married, you've got a baby on the way and you find out that, how the hell did you focus? Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, look, again, you look back on some of the things you do when you're younger and you do think you're a bit stupid, right? And I think, I think I was definitely in the stupid camp of um, not getting my priorities right. You know, I carried on working, um, definitely focused on the business, didn't really focus on having a newborn child. Um uh, yeah, and part part of it is the fear of you know if, I, if, if this is if it's potentially game over for me, then who's going to provide for for the family? Um, and part you know partly you know is it was, it was your first baby right? You're, you're 25 and you set this up, you pulled everything into it, 
Um, I mean, you know what it's like running Hoxton. Yeah. Right? It, it, yeah. it, it, it takes up so much of your, your day thinking about the business and breathing and living the business. Um, and, you know, I just didn't want to see it collapse. Um, yeah, now, yeah, I guess that, that's the, the hard thing when you look back at it overall. Um, you know, and then ended up ended up leaving the business to start start Dartmouth. Yeah, you go with that mindset. You, did you get through cancer while still being there, or did you leave during? The yeah, treat- no. So I, I got I had cancer, cancer treatment, came back after about six months, and and came back pretty determined that I couldn't go back to doing the same thing. So I had a pretty upfront conversation with the guys around, saying, "Look, things things need to change, and I'd like them to change." Um, and they were they were pretty resolute and saying, "We're kind of pretty happy with how it's how it's going." Um, so we had a pretty tortured, tortured six months trying to trying to manage my exit. Wow! And did they? How did they treat you and cope with while you were going through such a difficult ordeal? Did did they support you with that? Yeah, I, I, I can't. I, yeah, I can't. I can't say. I can't say they didn't. Yeah, we weren't. We weren't best mates, but we. You know, at that point, it was pretty pretty collaborative, and I think we. You know, they were they, they were generally pretty good. I mean, they you know, the reality was the business needed me at the time to, to keep keep going. Um, and I guess look, the, the, where, where it got trickier was talking about me wanting to change the business and wanting to grow it, and them saying we're happy. Then it then it became a bit, you know sort of headbutting for 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 sort of I guess roughly six months. We we're trying to work out how how do we how do we work our way forwards. So I'm interrupting today's episode to introduce today's sponsor, which is District 4. Some of you who listen to The Rag may have listened to the episode I did in Season 4 with James Johnson. James was the um, outwardly-facing CEO of Nickel Curtain Group, who sold in 2020 and has recently started a company called District 4. Now, after the episode, James and I spoke and... My passion for this model, for this idea is incredible because I've been the person that he's looking to work with. So when we discussed um, partnering with the, with the show, I, you know, it was a no-brainer for me. Um, District 4, for those of you that don't know, is a, is a brand new business model. And it's effectively a community of independent top billing recruiters that work under the banner of District 4, um, but, but run their own life. So um, post-COVID-19, there's going to be a we know there's a hell of a lot of top recruiters out there that have been working independently more so than ever before. Um, and there's a lot of people in the industry that don't necessarily love the whole people management bit. They're not managers. They're not directors. They just want to be really good recruiters. Now, traditionally, the only option for you as, a, as an individual like this has been to start your own agency. And there's a reason why 90% of the recruitment agencies in the world are sub-10 staff is because most people who do this start a recruitment agency, having been a top biller, not a manager, and then they, they, they build something that around them is, is, is not necessarily what they set out to do. And, they, and they're not built for scale that way. Whereas District 4 is a community of top performers who all work together um, and support each other. So if you're billing at least 200 grand and you're a niche recruiter, you can be a member of District 4, which means you effectively will recruit under their banner and be surrounded by other top billers. So you will be in like a daily contact and support network with other people billing the same sort of money, at a similar point in their career, who each want to um, have an amazing life. So none of you are going to be interested in, in building teams. It's going to be about billing as much as you can, about doing the best job you can and living the lifestyle you want, going on as many holidays as you want, finishing work when you want, living and working wherever you want, but knowing that you're 
your back office is supported, your legal, your compliance, your payroll, all the crap that recruiters don't really want to do. And believe me, when you start a business, it does bog you down. All of those things are taken away. James and his team will manage that. But not only that, they will coach you. James is, a, is an executive mentor. He works with startup founders. He helps people. He's also you know, spent some time with me recently as well, which has been incredible. Um, so he will not only make sure that your back office is taken care of, but the business will coach you, mentor you, and surround you. That's the key. It will surround you with A players, other top billing recruiters that are on the same path. It's like joining a Premier League club, all right? You don't join a Premier League club and then be in the first team with some juniors that haven't got the talent. Recruitment agencies across the world are exactly like that, whereas this is not. It's only for people building 200K or more. So if you thought your only option was to start your own agency or to stay in your business and go down some corporate ladder you didn't fancy, you need to speak to these guys. Go to www.district4.io forward slash hoxo. That's www.district4.io forward slash hoxo. On there, you'll see more information about their membership, how to get involved and register your interest. Within days, James will be on the phone. You'll have a conversation about the opportunity and you might be one step closer to being in control of your destiny. Don't wait now. Make that contact and change your life post-COVID for the better. How does going through cancer, at, you know, circa age of 30 with, with a newborn on the way and, you know, how does that change your priorities in life? How does it change the way you think? What impact did that have on you, do you think? I'd love to say that you know you cherish every moment and you really you really look after your family. Honestly, I don't I don't think it. I think you get as you get older, you get a bit maybe maybe a bit wiser, maybe definitely get a bit bolder. Um, you know, I think I think I'm that I'm, 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 I've just got greyer every day. I don't get bald. Take take grey over bald every day of the week. Um, I think yeah. How did it change you? I don't, I th honestly, I don't, I don't think it did massively. You know, I think from a, I mean, I've, I've mentioned a, you know, potentially becoming a vicar from a, from a faith point of view, it, it crystallizes, um, you know, I'm a Christian, it, crystal, it crystallizes, you know, your, you know, your certainty of hope, you know, if, if you, if you believe in something and what you ultimately trust in. Um, and that did help, you know, help, help me knowing that if I did die, you know, I, I believe in a, in a, in a, in a resurrection and a salvation. So that helped. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a from a practical day to day point of view, I think like everyone else, got a bunch of things wrong. You know, got my priorities wrong, and and went back to work far too early. I can imagine though, knowing what I'm like with my business, I can imagine in a way it also could help having something to focus on. That you know, rather than sitting there all day thinking about what could happen to yourself, you've got a business that's moving that stimulus every day isn't it it's something that, and, and you said it before it is your first baby i completely empathize with that i've got you know i've took certain things really personally which don't need to be taken personally and i've thought why do i get so and then as my mentor said it's like a fucking child like it's like a child you've, you've started a company it's just like having a child so i i totally get it i totally get it um so talk us through that six month period then how did you how, what, what did you need to do to, to, to negotiate out of a business you'd founded and, and been so instrumental in growing? Yeah, I think I think I don't know what the, what what the guys would say, but I think in retrospect, it, it was pretty obviously on the cards. You know, I'd said to them over a number of years that I'm not super happy with, you know, where the business is, is going. Um, and to be fair to them, they'd said they'd said you know from early on that they wanted a lifestyle recruitment business. You know, they didn't want it to be a big a big thing. Um, 
and, and I think broadly in our industry, you've probably got three three types of recruitment business, and the one that we see more often than not is a lifestyle recruitment business. Whether someone would call it that or not, you're you're basically basically running it for a dividend every year. Um, yeah. And yeah, this is one of my sort of defining things in in life. I think I think life is short, and I don't think money is is for most people. It's not the reason they get out of bed. Um, no. And I think a lot of people in our industry. Yeah, we, we recruit them on the basis that you want to earn money. And, and I think that attracts a lot of a lot of people in the industry. Probably keeps very few in the industry. Um, totally. I think what, what keeps people is probably you know, environment, culture, the buzz of doing a deal, um, com- competitiveness. But I think what can keep people long-term in the industry is the idea that you can have a genuine career path. And I think you know, a lot of people on your, on, your, on your podcast have said that, you know, actually recruitment is brilliant. It's a great leveler you know, in terms of it doesn't matter what background you're from. Yeah. And it's great. It's loads of opportunities for you if you go into a, a corporate environment to to change your job every every couple of years and to be challenged in a different way. Um, and unwittingly, unwittingly, I think that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to grow a business to to find out how good am I at actually running a business, not how good am I at recruitment ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know as I left Cornell, um, and and you know, initially it ended up being pretty you know, sort of relatively amicable in terms of we we carve things up. Um, it became less amicable as, as Dartmouth grew pretty quickly, um, but that you know the I guess the the you know, the, the starting point for Dartmouth was that we wanted a business where good people could grow quickly um, within within our within our framework. So what? So you 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 left the business, and then how long till you could start your next venture? Um, well, the planning the planning was about six months, um, and so. I think from an initial conversation with the guys back in January 20, uh, 2012 to launching Dartmouth July 2012, we launched the week of the, the London Olympic opening ceremony. That's literally the the time I moved back to the UK, August twenty August 4th, 2012, when I landed back from Australia. And then I I got into my recruitment job in London in September. So I remember that so well. That, yeah. that period. So you say we, who did you start the business with at the time? So I had... Um, I think we had seven, seven, eight people on day one. So um, seven people that worked with me at Cornell who, who came with me, or six, I think, um, and uh, a chap called Tim who I'd known for a long, long time who worked for a competitor um, mm. who I had to, had to uh, tell tell him that actually there's there's no job for you where you think you're joining whilst you're out in the garden for six months. <laughs> but they're, they're oh, like, they're, they're like a startup with no money. Uh, if you if you if you're willing to join us, so did you finance it all yourself? Or you didn't go out and get any investment. Yeah, no, I took a I took a I took a loan from family uh, secured against the property. Um, that was a couple of hundred grand, and, and and that that got us through for the the first the first next couple of months. So you you literally you know you, you've made a statement by doing that, haven't you? That this is not going to be. There's been a couple of people I've interviewed through this this show and they've gone like that there was a guy steve rawlingson up in the northeast i interviewed in season one um samuel knight associates in in the oil and gas oil and gas sector um he i think he left his business with nine or nine or ten people on day one and it just went for it and the, the pace they grew was insane um because you, you like you said you're not you're not trying to just bill a bit higher bill a bit higher you go in let's just get the money in the bank let's go from day one so Take us back to that time then at the beginning of Dartmouth, you know, your second incarnation, if you like. What, how did it feel? 
I mean, it definitely, you definitely feel more exposed. So I, remember, I was 31 years old at this point, and you definitely feel much more exposed because it's, it's definitely all on you at this point. You know, regardless of what I thought of, of my other two partners, it's, they're definitely partners and you share, you share the burden and it's, it's, mm. it's, it's a good feeling having that. Um, and off, off, off the, you know, Logan the Pied Piper leads with Mary Band into uh, another serviced office with, with no lights at this point <laughs> and no ceiling. So, um, you know, I think that, that, first, that first couple of weeks, everyone's looking at me going, you know, what, what are we signed up for here? Like nothing works. Um, and you're kind of trying to say it's going to be fine, guys. Don't don't worry, it's going to be fine. It's, in fact, it's going to be great. It's not going to be fine. It's going to be great. And uh, all these people were recruiters, experienced people, so they all had worked for a period of time with you, and you knew their capabilities, etc. Yeah, any anywhere from from the first six months into recruitment up to circa a decade. Yeah, yeah. Was, was roughly where we were. So, what? How was the first year in that business compared to the first year we talked about in the first? It was it was tougher actually because 2012 the market was market market was still pretty tough in financial services so um, yeah it wasn't it wasn't straightforward um, but yeah we 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 had a decent first year um, and the, the idea it's amazing how these things shape you but I was reading Jim Collins's from Good to Great at the start yeah. um, and yeah we 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 defined our ambitions as being we're going to be number one or number two in every every market we go into um, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're going to try and grow by top and bottom line by 30% every year. And those are, those are two aims that we've got up on the walls in, in the office uh, and remain, remain, remain two of the aims of the business year on year, 30% growth, top and bottom line every year. Every year. So what did you, did you think about like 10 years time back then? Were you thinking about 2021 or whatever? Was it, or were you, cause like one of the things last week's episode with James Kahn was really interesting when I, I asked James, you know, did you see that Alexander Mann scale at the beginning? And he said, no, he said he just kept looking at the next step. So he'd go from a million in revenue to a million in profit. And then, and that's kind of how I think I've done what I've done. I'm nowhere near the level you're at, but, you know, did I really set out to have the business I have today? No. And, you know, in a year, things have transformed so much. So I feel like I'm, I'm always looking at that next step. But what, what's been your ingredient to it, I suppose, over the, over the last 10 years? I think it's very similar. You look at the next, look at the next step. The only thing that changes over time is your your view on how far the next step could, can take you changes. Yeah. So, you know, when you start out, and I think I, I listened to part of James's one. You know, you think about the first million pound profit, you know, or the first million revenue, and then it's, then it's the first million pound profit, and then the first million cash in the bank. Yeah. And and we had similar a similar journey in in terms of okay, thirty percent growth year on year. It's easy when you're eight people. It gets harder when you're thirty. It gets harder when you when you're 150. Um, the one aspiration I, I had early on, I said, "Look, we're going to we're going to be backed by private equity. We're going to do a P deal in the first in the first ten years." And obviously, everyone in recruitment thinks about having some sort of exit um, mm. at, at some point. And I was pretty determined that we would we'd work towards that. Um, and and as that became a reality, we took we took P investment in 20, 2018. Um, you know, it was still a reasonably small business, but the thing that, that changed has changed over the last couple of years is your your horizon of where you can go. So first of all, we talked about being a business that could be worth twenty million quid, and then we said, okay, we'll try and be a business worth a hundred million quid, um, and we can see that on the horizon in the next couple of years. So now I start thinking, okay, well, can we go from hundred million to three hundred million on this, in the same time span that's taken us, and, and things start to you know accelerate, and and in some ways some ways get easier over time well what one question i've got for you i was listening to a podcast with um with eddie hearn from the boxing space yeah. and talking about 
his it was quite similar to what you said, you know, 100 million, 200 million. He's talking about these numbers and being, he's got this aspiration to be bigger than the UFC, which is where I think it sold for 8 billion or something. And the, 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 the host of the show was like, why? And, and he couldn't answer it. Like he had, no re- he had no reason other than to beat the UFC, right? So my question to you is, like, why, why do you want to get to 100 million and maybe 300 million? Like, what's driving that? Like, why do you even need that in your life? You don't, well, you don't, you definitely don't need it, right? But um, if we go, and it's definitely not, it's definitely not money. We go back to what, what, you know, yeah. what do we get out of bed in the morning? It's, I think, that the thing that I find super interesting now, and as I said, I, th- I think we can look at our sector and be really proud of our sector. Um, but you could, you know, it's, it's interesting working out, working out how good am I? How, how good am I at business? Um, not, you know, initially, how good am I as a recruiter? How good am I as a, as a team leader, as a manager? How, how good am I at running a business? And then, you know, not just in the recruitment world, can I can I transcend that? And, and do I do I stack up well against the rest of the the industry um, industries out there? So I think I think that's where it gets, you know, you know, you're kind of just testing yourself. And and it's not I don't I don't view it as a competition. You know, do I need to sell 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 a business for a, you know, a quid more than Adam Buck? It'd be nice just to tell him that I've done, <laughs> I've done it. Um, yeah and but it's 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 uh yeah it's it's more about it's, it's it, i guess it's more about the, the journey is interesting right it's knackering it's but it's like, like it's you remind me of like the way you're talking it's a bit more like an athlete like you know like a david goggins type like could i push myself further not you know it, it, i don't think he cares whether he's in a race with people he's more about his own body can he push his own body further and it, could, you're looking at can you push yourself and your business further that's the vibe i'm getting yeah and it's yeah, it's it's look, it's super fun, right? It is it is really it's really really fun, and we talked about this, you know, being 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 another child, um, you know, and it, the, the, these things are incredibly personal to you, and you know, and, and um, you know, I like, the thing about lockdown that I've missed, I've missed seeing people, I've missed really missed seeing our people, and and um, you, know, you know, all the pastoral stuff that goes that goes with running a recruitment company, but I, I've missed. I've missed, you know, proverbially getting your arm around someone's shoulder and saying it's going to be okay. Just I know that feeling. What? So take me back to the early days of of Dartmouth then, and what? Because one of the things you've said over and over again is you wanted to prove you were good at business, not recruitment. So how did you? What did? What changes did you make the second time round to ensure it wasn't you just doing a million quid with a lot of resources or whatever? What? How did you? Ta- how did you become a business owner rather than a self-employed recruiter? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we're we're all recruiters at the end of, end of the day, and I'm a recruiter, and we have some habits and traits that put us, <laughs> put, you know, stop us being being successful, right? And, and one of them is our is generally our own ego around wanting to be a big killer, yeah. Um, and that's your that's your calling card for for validation from the floor, yeah. Um, and I think I can probably view Dartmouth in in you know certainly early early stage Dartmouth in two phases. Phase one was everyone's a biller um and 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 what matters is who's the biggest biller um and, and were you phase, were you involved in that as well did you go yeah, back into yeah, that I was, mode? I, was, I was i was i was still billing um and i still bill a bit now but it's 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 immaterial to to what's actually going on in the in, in the group mm. um and the second phase was saying like actually uh you know who are the heroes in our business and the, you know i think we've got two, two sets of heroes and one's 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 more visible than the other so you know, the billers, you know, are, are heroes because they're the ones that that ultimately probably earn more annual comp. But your managers and your leaders are the, are the quiet heroes who go around doing quite often a slightly thankless task 
mm. um, and the, a, a really, really important and necessary task. And that, that original thing, right, those people going through that journey have a, have a more traditional corporate career path than, yeah. than, than people who, who want to rinse and repeat on, on recruitment every year. Yeah. So, so how did you, when, can you remember when you stepped out of that performer and became more of a leader and thought about working on the business rather than in the business? Yeah, I think, I think it was circa 2016, 2017. So we'd, we'd grown, you know, pretty quickly. We'd hit that 30% year on year growth every single year. Um, and then 2015 to 2016, we just, we got stuck at 30 to 40 into that classic, you know, 30 mm. to 42 down to 33, yeah. back up to 40. And we did that yo-yo for 18 months. Um, and it was a pretty slow realisation, frankly, over, over 18 months, saying, OK, something needs to change. Um, and the thing that needs to change is me. You know, it's not, I, can, I can keep trying to get everyone else to change around me, but it's, it's me that needs to change. So we just took a step back, um, yeah, more or less collectively, and worked out, OK, what infrastructure are we going to need to take that step forwards? What do we need to invest in? Um, and, and I guess, crucially, the thing that, you know, pulling me away from clients that that changed the dynamic as well because it actually creates a lot of breathing space for for people to to say okay that's that's my responsibility to go out and and win work it's not not Logan's um, or a, a cluster of a cluster of senior individuals um, and yeah we, we it was a really painful eighteen months because we turned over a lot of people who'd signed up for not being in the recruitment business yeah obviously they they knew we were recruitment but it's like we don't want to act like another recruitment business you know. Sales isn't anywhere on the job spec, Logan. I didn't sign up for that. Um, <laughs> you know, wow. Because you know, I'm, I'm going to execute the work you bring in. Um, and we went through that journey for 18 months um, and came out the other side. And I remember, let's get this right. Christmas 2016, we had a really, really bad Christmas party. You know, when you, you, you know, we always do a coursey presentation, um, and we've always been very open about these are our results. This is what the money we've made, etc. So, you know, and again, one one eye on thinking we'd, we'd, you know, we'll come under more scrutiny and maybe be a PLC one day. So we was being pretty open about, you know, results and revenue. Um, and Christmas 2016, the Christmas party, it was really flat. Just thinking people have been really beaten up. And I was trying to tell people, I, like, I think I think we've really turned a corner, guys. I think next year we're going to have a really good year because you could just, just feel it. And you can look at some of the data. Um, and I think the signs are good. And you can just see, if I was like, don't believe you at all. You know, just, just cannot believe it. Um, but then 2017 ended up being a, being a really good year. A final interruption to today's episode to introduce Vincere. Vincere is the all-in-one CRM ATS platform built for the recruitment and staffing industry. Now, I first heard about these guys about a year ago. The amount of prospect recruitment agencies and clients I was working with that were telling me they were moving over to Vincere, I had to look into it. And what I found was a business that had a global reach um, with multiple offices around the world. So they've got this follow the sun methodology, which allows them to support recruitment businesses wherever you are and, have, and, and be in your time zone. But the technology that they've invested in um, is becoming a, a disruptor in the space. More and more recruitment businesses are, are doing this to give their, their recruiters a competitive advantage. They broke into the G2 crowd's momentum grid as a market leader based on their reviews from their customers. So the, the agencies that are using this platform are raving about it. Now, 
if you're a rag listener and you're thinking about changing CRM or you're a new business looking to launch with a new CRM, then I would get in touch with, the, with these guys because if you mention that you're a rag listener, they're doing an amazing deal. By visiting www.vincere.io forward slash rag, you can get an exclusive deal which offers two months completely free on a two-year commitment or three months completely free on a three-year commitment. This applies to all licenses that you've either signed up for now or that you'll add in the duration of the contract. So get on there and have a look. Finally, if you're listening to your recruiter and you're thinking, I want to move into a more of a business development role um, and I'd like to keep hold of my recruitment knowledge. Well, these guys are recruiting for a BD person, well, multiple roles in both Sydney and London right now. So if you've got a strong recruitment background, you want to move into BD and you want to work for a fast moving tech business that's helping people like you right now, then get in touch via their website because they're hiring today. Back to the show. You got out your own comfort zone. That's what I picked from that. How did you... What, what, what was that like going from doing being the person controlling everything to stepping away and allowing that breathing space? Like how can you remember how you how you managed that and, and the difficulties you fa you faced? I'd love to say it was really smoothly executed. Um, and I, I think look, we learned we learned along the way, right? You know the the that, and that's one of the problems with the industry. You know, people, you, you kind of learn on the job, and a lot yeah. of it, you know, a lot of it that the whole problem. I think Tim Cook repeats this over and over again, saying you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm. And and um, yeah, the, the, one of the downsides of recruitment is because we're so competitive with one another. That sharing of of of, of the journey and sharing of, of the highs and lows and how can you help people? Um, there aren't that many groups out there that that, that do it, you know. And and um, there are there are a couple now, and I, you know, I think they're they're really brilliant actually for for that. But my mm. my, my view is that. You know, at that point, there's a lot of trial and error. We knew something had to change. We tried a bunch of things. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. You know, we started focusing really heavily on L&D as an example and saying, okay, we talk about having a career path, um, you know, soup to nuts. How are we going to grow, you know, salespeople? How are we going to grow leaders? Uh, had a couple of iterations of that till we, till we got it right. Um, you know, but... How big, what, how big do you think a recruitment company should be when it starts to invest in those things? Those are ancillary services around you know, operational improvements and, and L&D is a big one. I, th I think L&D, as soon as you start hiring inexperienced people, you know, to, if you, I guess as soon as you go beyond everyone as being a salesperson and you're hiring in grads, so if you're hiring grads, I think you need a L&D, mm. whether it's, you know, in-house or outsourced. As soon as you start asking people to manage, I think they need training on it. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, the age-old problem of good, good billers don't make great managers. Um, yeah, people need training on it. Uh, and that's where that's where I think Dartmouth is really good. You know, I think our sales our sales stuff sales training is okay, um, but the bit that I think we're great at is that is that management and leadership training. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And uh, I think there's so many recruitment companies that will hold on as long as they can before they invest in those things. So you know, they'll and and they they can burn good people. They can they can really put pressure on people when you know a small investment in a in in some out uh, you know outsourced training or whatever i went i went on the nikki coffin course back in the day on i think it was called centered excellence um as i got into a team leader manager role at venquist and it was brilliant you know it was like you said it was the best bit about it we were like the biggest team there there was about five of us and there's about 15 in the group so five from my company, but I just love meeting people from different companies. That that was the best bit. Just listening to how they approach things and getting a day out of the 
the, the, the grind of doing the same shit every day. Um, and I, I, I wonder why there's not more of those clubs and things for that layer, that management layer, because there is quite a lot out there now for the owner. There's quite a lot of communities for yeah. recruitment owners, but there's not as much for that layer below. I believe my old colleague Hisham is trying to do that through his recruitment mentors network. Um, so I, I hope that that works because, yeah, there's, there's thousands of managers and leaders in the businesses that could be future. I mean, they don't all have to leave. They could, they could have a great career, but they probably feel like they need to leave because they're not getting that support or that, that network. Yeah. I think too many, I mean, we end up, too many recruitment owners end up thinking of them like like cash businesses, right? Because, you know, I mean, you'll, you'll know the stats, but, you know, what is it, 36,000 agencies in the country, mm -hmm. something like that. How many, how many are bigger than 30 people? You know, 10%? Yeah, it was 81% of sub 10 staff. Yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, to get an above 30, I think there's, yeah, well less than 10%. Yeah. And so that people don't really think around, they don't think about, you know, the investment that's going to be required because they think of them as cash businesses yeah, and they run as cash businesses. So that, you know, four or 5,000 pounds on, on an expensive piece of training um, may not be needed in a 10 person business, but if you aspire to, to it being bigger, you're going to need great managers um, mm -hmm. and, great, and great leaders. And those people need to be invested in. Um, yeah, look, we, we, we definitely, yeah, we, we, we had some bad spend along the way. Yeah, we, we were chucking money out the door trying to see what works. Um, and so, the, you know, so again, some of the stuff that we learned from outside, was from outside our industry, talking to other people, seeing what, what do you guys do if you're a people-based business? How are you going to train your salespeople up? Um, yeah, and then, and then yeah, we, we, we did this thing at Dartworth where we've got culminates in a mini MBA with London Business School, which we stole that idea from St. James's Place. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, they have yeah, St. James's Place. Yeah, I know it gets a bad press if you read the Times, but the history yeah. of that business here is a hardcore sales business. You know, they, yeah. were, they, were, they were taking their... Their, their high rollers down and, and kind of leasing cars for a month. It was proper like recruitment style. Yeah, sales. yeah. Um, and then they have a FTSE 100 business and and thought, well, we, we might need to professionalise some of this now. Um, so how how are they going to train some of their bigger practice leaders? And so they did this thing with with, with London Business School and tied up tied it up there. And I was talking to one of my mates that works there, and he was saying, oh yeah, I've just done this really great thing with London Business School. So I'll put me in touch with them. So I spoke to them, and um, yeah, they, they obviously. It all sounds very good. So, how, how big is the check going to be? So, well, well, London Business School is quite expensive, um, and you get, you know, you get, you kind of get the uh, get the pricing, and it, you know, your heart sinks. It's just so expensive. Um, but at that point, our our chairman said, "Look, you're going to need to spend this kind of money if you're going to go through the next turn uh, and the next part of the journey. You're going to need, you know, business leaders that are capable of doing more than yeah. what they currently see and can learn on the job." Um, and for me, that's been one of our game changers. You know, it's kind of, and I tried to get, I remember trying to get other people in, in the industry excited to come and kind of basically help shoulder the cost of it and, and send some of their staff on it. And it, it's just too big a spend for, for yeah. most businesses to, um, and the fee, I guess the, the thing that, you know, as, as salespeople, we like instant results. We like quicker results and, and investing in something where you can't have a guaranteed ROI on it or a quick turnaround. Yeah, so I'm going to have a better manager. You know, what, what if they what if they leave the industry and go somewhere else? Eventually, um, is always the pushback. Oh, it's like it's like my our academy program. We're now coaching about three thousand recruiters around the world on how to you know build a brand on LinkedIn. And the okay. first question we get asked is, you know, how how many deals are they going to do? I'm like, 
how many deals are going to do? Like, we're coaching them to create content and and promote themselves. You know, I can't quantify that. I can guarantee that we're going to see X amount of uplifting profile views and engagement, and they're going to, you know. But then, when you look at the spend on LinkedIn from recruitment businesses on a monthly, I mean, it's huge, you know. And then we we, we worked out about fifty percent of recruiters. Sorry, recruiters spend about 50% of their day on LinkedIn now. So you're spending 50% of your waking, working time on a platform you're spending a fortune to have access to. And then when I say, like, do your teams know how to utilize one of the main focuses, which is producing content? And they say, no. I'm like, well, isn't it worth a small investment per head to to get the head around that? And yeah, the the people that do are clearly thinking further ahead. The ones that don't, I mean, I kind of just think, well, you'll get there eventually. (laughs) You're going to need it at some point. Um, but I totally, you know, marketing is quite similar. You just got to subscribe to the long play and and, and believe in it. Um, so so that investment with LBC, well, London Business School, so not LBC, you're not on the radio. Um, and uh, the, you know, that focus to get above that 40 head barrier that was kind of, you know, a ceiling for you, if you like, in yeah. 2017. How did the business go in 2018, 19 after, after going a bit more seriously into that investment of people? Yeah, we kicked we kicked on. So yeah, as I said, up to 2016, we plateaued at 40, and then we 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 kicked on. You know, we started hitting that 30% growth year on year. I think we went to you know 40, 45% year on year. Wow. Um, we took investment from Literacy Capital June 2018, um, and and we were a business making two million pound profit at that point. And and you know, fast forward 18 months, and we've more than doubled in size. Um, you know, wow. through one acquisition, but also organically. So what was the- what was that like? You know, I've spoke to a lot of owners recently about this, but you know, from the likes of James Brown at Storm Two and Tim Cook, etc. But did you go out and look for that investment at that point? Did you go out to to, to find that that player when you were two million pound profit business, or did that come to you through the, the business network? It was it was a it was a mixture of both. It's funny how these things happen. Three three million was the number that we'd always thought, and I'd always been told by ex colleagues. In corporate finance, I remember having this conversation with with, with I, won't, I won't mention him, but um, a mate of mine said, "Look, three million—that's the number. Then then you're, you're probably backable." And he was used to doing slightly bigger deals. Um, and then I had a lunch with a guy that I'd placed, um, who operates in our sector. Um, and uh, uh, Ed said to me, he, he said, "Well, I think at two million, you, you probably could, you, know, you probably could go and do something." Actually, so I said, "Look." Yeah, I think we're one year away from it, but tee up five conversations and we'll, we'll see, see what happens. We had tentative offer from a client um, and then I met Literacy um, and I just really like, I really like the way they approach things. I like their style. I think so far, well, I hope they'd say this, but you know, two and a half, three years in, it's been a really happy marriage so far. Um, what's, I think their, got- what's, their, what's their pitch to you at that point? Like, What do they, what do they look, what do they say they can do for you to, to, to close that deal? I think they, I mean, the thing that they've done is they open up your horizons to what's possible, you know, and, you know, our, our investor, it's been a really good blend of being, you know, we'll, we'll let you run the business as you want to run the business. Um, and, and we'll give you advice as and when we see fit that there needs to, there needs to be advice, but you, you carry on doing what you're, what you're doing. Um, and at no point have I felt that we're doing something I'm not comfortable with or I don't like, like what's going on. Um, it's been pretty collaborative, which I think, you know, things are going well. The best best partnerships are collaborative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably now and then there's been things that they may not have been happy with or I might not have been happy with. But broadly, two and a half years in, it's been a really good journey. And I think I think, you know, again in recruitment, I think a lot of people think about 
you know, what's the best price I can get and get out. And it can be a house of cards quite often. Um, I've never thought like that, partly because I'm still on, still on the journey. I'm still a major shareholder in the business. Um, but I also just thought it's not a good way to do business, right? You're, you know, the best, best scenario is where everyone wins. And yeah. that means you win, you know, you, you, you win, a group of other people win, but you don't win as much, but we all win together. That just feels, feels, you know, more like the right thing to do and more enjoyable winning with others than, than doing it all by yourself. Does it feel different though, being a solopreneur this time around, being the, the sole founder and now having those, those backers involved, does it feel a bit like the partnership model you had before? Does it have similarities to that? Yeah, I'd say just, I'd say that, but I'd also, I think we've built a really great management team um, along the way. Um, and I've worked with you know, a number of our directors for over a decade now, and we've hired had some cracking people on along the way who've really grown with the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, that's been, and I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying that, but I, I've really, really enjoyed working with that, that group of people over the last, last, you know, eight years and particularly the last three or four years and seeing people grow and then seeing, you know, quite often seeing their potential before they see it and seeing where they could go to. And if you've got a vision for the business in your, in your head and how big it could be or where it could go, then thinking, okay, well, if that's where, they, they don't know it yet, but that's where their, their career could, could head, in, head into. And I think there's there's a good number of case studies in our business of people who never thought they'd be doing what they're doing today when they when they first set foot onto the sales floor. No, I, I definitely didn't think I'd be doing this back in the day when I started yeah. recruitment either. So why Pure Search? Why did you go out and, and acquire a business in, was it last year or the year before you said that happened? September 2019, so you could say oh, canny oh, oh, timing. Oh, oh. Oh, well, so talk, talk us through that then. What what happened there? Um, yeah, look, after doing the Lisbon deal, we you know I guess the model the model is strong core organic growth in in Dartmouth, and we'll selectively look to acquire other businesses where we can operationally help them go go faster through through investing in the business. And we go back to the original premise: a lot of businesses are run as as lifestyle businesses, even ones that are pretty big. You know, so mm-hmm. ones that ones that you know pure was about hundred people. Um, and 20 years old when we when we acquired it, um, you know we allowed the two founders to, to cash out, and um, you know I think I think you know, COVID COVID they help you know reasonably, reasonably firm, and I think we'll see strong growth in that business this year. Um, and the mindset, and I think the narrative changes for, for around saying look what you know what could we make this year as a dividend and, and and pull out and go again versus if we make let's say two million quid, how much can we put back in to just help help you double that next year. Yeah. So the, are the two owners involved still or have they, have they left when they cashed out? I think they're currently working their golf handicap, which is, which is yeah. uh, given, given, given last year was a smart move. Yeah, I bet, I bet they, they're sat thinking, got out at the right time. Um, grinning like Cheshire cats. Yeah. Tell, tell me then, how was life like for you in March 2020? You've just, you know, you've got investment now, you, you've got a backer, you've, you've just acquired a business, you've got, you know, circa you know almost 200 people to be responsible for and across two businesses one that's still early on in its in its infancy in the relationship and then we go into the worst global well the, the, the a pandemic that's not been seen for 100 years how did that how did you cope with that um yeah i mean it's 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 it's, it's really surreal isn't it thinking thinking back to that time i remember taking the tube the tube home um the week the week the day of Rishi announcing furlough, you know, and unless you're yeah. a missionary, no one knew what furlough was, right? So, no, nope. um, a word we heard, right? Exa- exactly. So, I think we'll, I mean, the, the fascinating thing that 
you know, for everyone that survived it, and I don't want to underplay it because obviously there's there's still a lot of people on furlough and there's a lot of industries that have been really oh, affected, right. affected by it and, and obviously a lot of lives that have been affected by it. But um, the fascinating thing when you look back on it is how quickly we, we were learning on the job um, and tr transitioning our businesses into different, completely different models. And by and large, particularly in our sector, generally how, how resilient we were you know, po post the first quarter. You know, so March, April, May were, were pretty unpleasant. You know, I, was, I, I kept the same routine all the way through last year. So wake up at six, um, instead, of, instead of going to the gym, went, had a shower, went for a walk every day, got onto, got onto phone calls um, to various people around the world, um, and then just work a 14, 15 hour day. Uh, and rinse and repeat and you know we were learning pretty quickly and and you know all the data and all the signs were pretty bad right you know job job flow dried up um and it bottomed out in may um and we, we made one month of a trading loss in in may and then from june july onwards we started to feel a bit more optimistic about the world um and you know, couldn't couldn't call it but we started to think okay we could start hiring again um and then you know q q2 q3 last year we put out a number of offers and i think q4 by end of by Q4 last year, we ended up having our third best quarter ever uh, in Q4, and then Q1 this year has been our best ever quarter. Um, but the bounce back was pretty pretty aggressive off, and, and I think that surprised everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think across the board that that's a similar story, really, isn't it? Like you know, whenever I speak to people, it the fear was there. the The reaction of our from our sector was rapid. Like the the the, the transition. I hate the word pivot, but there was a bit of that that people did. Um, I mean, I launched the academy program at the beginning of, of it, literally a year ago in this weekend, or Easter Monday was the day I literally worked and planned the whole thing out and then built the following couple of weeks and launched in May. And that's become a business within itself now. It's a second completely its own entity in our, in our organization. And it's crazy. But the, the, the amount of owners that got on board with that and were, you know, learning things and trialing things themselves is real. I, I'm, I'm really proud of the sector in the last 12 months. Really, really proud. What, what do you think the next 12 months looks like, both for yourself and for the, the, the UK recruitment sector in light of where we are today? Well, I think, I think, the, I mean, the UK recruitment sector, if you look at some of the data, if you're not, you know, you're not doing retail, I think it's, it's generally looking pretty, pretty healthy, isn't it? And I, and I, I think, that my my guess would be, and I'm, I'm no economist, but my guess would be we're going to see a pretty strong bounce back in terms of return of the, the economy this mm -hmm. year and, and next year. And there's a lot of there is a lot of institutional money in in particularly in the city, um, and I guess that's what we we focus on what we see. But you know, post post Q2 last year, the banks had a good year. Um, they're seeing a lot of activity in the in the capital markets this year, and and there's a lot of money floating about chasing chasing a small number of good assets, which I think is going to push asset prices up. So what we see in the housing market is probably what we'll see in the in the recruitment market, uh, particularly with, with, you know, in the square mile in, in London. Um, and then for Dartmouth, you know, Dartmouth and Pure, I think we'll, we'll see good, strong core organic growth if we can find another acquisition that, that makes sense for the group in the next six to 12 months. That would be, that would be, that would be great. Um, and then we'd, lo we'd love to, to think, start thinking about the IPO in the next 12 to 18 months wow so exciting and what's your your life personally are you are you you mentioned about missing your people are you are you now starting to meet and venture into the the office a couple of times a week or whatever what's it like for you yeah i think we've we've we've, we've kind of said to people if you need to go in go go in for mental health reasons we've not officially opened up the office 
I think from April the 12th, we'll, we'll start to think about it. Um, uh, I'm definitely going to go in to get a haircut. That's the first thing I'm doing. And then, um, yeah, look, I, I, I don't know where we'll land. And I'm actually quite reluctant to, to say this is going to be our official policy because my, my guess is for this year, whilst we're in and out of, of bouncing around, you know, government enforced restrictions to, to what we can do, um, some sort of flexible working makes perfect sense. But my guess is in a normalised world or a more normal world, people will fall onto coming into the office more often than not through their own volition because mm. they'll they'll realize what they what they miss and what they what they actually want and um i think look, working from home clearly clearly is fine but in in our world and our environment actually everything's a lot faster doing it in person um and if you're trying to do things at pace yeah um, which we are you can't you can't you can't beat it i think it's as well like the the support network of people in person like that's probably the one thing i miss the most is that you know, just picking people up or being picked up there and then as something happens. Whereas now you've got to go, have you got five minutes? Well, yeah. actually, no, I'm in and checking someone's diary. They're in a Zoom call. They'll probably be out in an hour. Like everything's delayed. In some ways, it's good because you get time to reflect on yourself a lot. But I'm bloody sick of reflecting on myself all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think we'll go back because my, my business has gone international from, you know, I've, I've not met half my staff. We've, we've doubled the business in the last 12 months and a lot of my team are in the US and South Africa now. So I don't have, I've not even met them. Um, we're going to a WeWork, global WeWork strategy where everyone's going to have WeWork passes and they'll feel like we're in a similar environment and then we'll travel and meet the team and what have you and try and get everyone together every six months. Um, but from a recruitment where everyone's in sales, my business isn't like that. Where everyone's in sales, you know, I can totally, I totally agree that, well, it's going to be an interesting space next year. 2020, 2022 is going to be the time. Um, Logan, I could talk to you all day about this. I think it's fascinating what you've achieved and you're so humble as well. Like you literally just, you know, you, you'd never guess you'd achieve so much. I don't think you're just so relaxed with it. Um, what one thing I want to know is like, if you were talking to a founder who's maybe two years in, guilty of being the the control freak who's trying to do everything, and you know a bit like you might have been in the past, and and I know I have been. You know, what advice would you give that person to to be able to think a bit bigger, you know, and start to to become a business owner rather than a you know say a recruiter with a with a surrounding network of resources or whatever? Yeah, I think the first thing that you've got to work out is what do you actually want to achieve because. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people, I go back to my original partners at, at Cornell, they've got what they wanted, right? They wanted to run a lifestyle business and they've got exactly that. And and why would you want to change that if it, if it, if it works for you? And if, if that's, you know, life is pretty, life is pretty short and, and can be short. So do do what fundamentally you're going to enjoy. And, and if you like that freedom of running a lifestyle business where you can come and go as you please a bit more, you can take as much holiday as you like, et cetera, et cetera, stick, stick to it. You've aspired to something bigger, and you're willing to change. And we go back to, you know, the, the training of, you know, being being in the gym, and what am I willing to put myself through to achieve, you know, a time or the body I want or, or whatever yeah. it is. If you're willing to willing to do that, I think you, you know, the industry actually is surprisingly friendly. Um, you know, despite the bad rep, people are really helpful and willing to um, give up give up their time. And, and I would say just go and find a couple of good mentors and pick their brains. And find people who are, who are willing to talk to you, um, and just get a download, right? Get a download of, of you know all all the stuff that that can go wrong. Like people are pretty open about that, and all the stuff that you, you could get right. 
um, and then pick the best bits. You know, you know, if there was one formula, we'd all just copy it, right? So, yeah, if you know Adam Buck at Faden, you just go, well, we'll just do what Adam's doing, or, or um, you know, let's just co copy that or copy the Storm guys now, right? Let's just, yeah. And that's, you know, again, that's a particular model for a particular group of people. And it's going to, I think I've got no doubts that that's going to work brilliantly for those guys again. Um, but, you know, our industry is full of so many different types of, of recruitment businesses uh, done in different ways. And you've got to largely reflect the owner, right? Yeah. So a lot yeah. of this personality, let's say, do something that you're comfortable with. I like that. I agree with that. And what you mentioned, good to great. It's actually on my list. I've still not read it. Um, what have you got any other? publications books podcasts anything you've listened to or read in the past that you think a, an aspiring owner of growth would, would benefit from i'm a sucker for these i you know I, I suck i suck up these books so I, I could give you i could give you a very long list um there's a i'll tell you a book, book that i really enjoyed that's that's not well known there's a book called branded gentry um, branded gentry yeah and that actually might but it's it's people whose whose names above the door so johnny bowden um uh orla keely people people like that um and that's a really interesting book about how your personality becomes the brand and their business are a reflection of, of them and how you inhabit it. And that was that was quite interesting. I've got tons, though. I've, I've, I've just read the Netflix, I've just read the Netflix book, um, uh, No Rules Rules. I've got that. I'm on the go. I keep starting books and not getting into them, though. I start the first chapter and then something else happens. So to, what did you think of that? Because that's all about culture, isn't it? And how they... Yeah, it's all about culture. It's fascinating. I mean, it's very, um, it's very Silicon Valley. Right, mm. but but the thing that you get from that, they've got they've got they've got they say they've got no rules, but it's a high performance culture, and that's what that's what rules ultimately. So, if you're no good, you're out, and that's that's the, basically the only rule in the business. Mm. What uh, what what I'm listening to at the moment is something called essentialism. So um, it's Greg Greg McCowan, um, and I'm loving it. It's it's I'm almost done with. It's only like a five five and a half hour audio, but but talks about doing less better and. You know the 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 non-essentialists feel like they need to try and achieve everything and do everything and 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 please everyone. Yet the most some of the most successful people are those that are comfortable with letting people down and saying no, like you know, no to the following invite, no to this, no to that, to focus on what's most essential so they can have the most, you know, the most impact in in the direction that they're going. I think it's like you know you could do a lot of things average or you could do one thing really really well. Um, so I'm. Yeah, if you haven't read that, I would recommend it. I've loved that book. Um, Logan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've had a few comments. We've had Mark. Mark Levine said, really enjoying this, but I have a client visit at two. We'll watch the rest later. Thank you both. Jean-Claude said, uh, I went from being an ex-squaddy to accountancy recruitment in one jump, so I had to learn recruitment and accountancy at the same time. Um, so, you know, we've all had a different journey, but you know, I can guarantee that I've learned a lot from you and I've enjoyed it and I'm sure my listeners will as well. So um, good luck for the rest of the year and nice um, we'll get you back on at some point next year and find out how you've conquered the world at that point. Never know. Um, maybe one day we'll do this in person. Yeah, maybe. And you can interview me, I think. Let's let's turn, let's turn it around. Um, but guys, thank you so much for listening. Anyone on LinkedIn who's watching back live, anyone who's listening on the show, um, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I hope you've learned from from Logan, and and you know, there's so much to take from that. Um, I um, I've, I always say, it, and Logan mentioned this. You know, our sector, we get so wrapped up in being in competitors, and you know, keeping things institutionalized in our organisations. But actually, 
we're, we're a hell of a lot stronger if we learn from each other. Well, if we, even if you learn one thing and take it and implement from today's show, you, you know, you're going to be better off for it. So I'm, I'm asking you to please share this episode, send it to someone, you know, colleague, boss, whoever, um, because together we will, we will be stronger and we'll get through this pandemic and, and, and flourish. Um, I'll be back again next Wednesday with another high profile business leader in our sector. In the meantime, you stay safe and I'll see you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Hoxo Media. We are the world's number one inbound marketing agency exclusively focused on helping the recruitment industry. Myself and my business partner started the business in 2017, having been recruiters for seven years before. We felt that the recruitment industry back then needed to change and that marketing was going to play a huge role in the way that new and existing recruitment organizations won business and stood out in such a crowded marketplace. In three years, we've now worked with over 200 organizations around the world. We reach a huge audience with both this podcast and content online. And we have over 55 recruitment agencies right now. We're managing the marketing for. So that involves strategy, content creation, distribution, systems process, and leads generated. Having been recruiters and marketeers, We can not only build your brand, but we're also able to connect it to your sales team and ensure that leads are generated as a result of marketing. There's a clear ROI that leads to sales activity. But we also understand recruitment businesses. That's small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses in all sectors. We understand you, we've done the job, and we can build campaigns that are super relevant to what you need as a business right now. We've also recently launched the Hoxo Academy, which is designed to help recruitment owners, recruiters and marketeers learn from the work that we do so that you can action some of this stuff in-house on your own. The Academy has been launched in May 2020 and has already had an amazing uh, response from the market and it's only going to grow one way. So if you're interested in either having Hoxo support you build your marketing as as a supplier that acts as part of your team or you want to be trained by us on how to do it yourself, then get in touch. Visit www.hoxomedia.com and register your interest on our homepage. We will then get back to you within 24 hours and arrange uh, an introductory call. Thanks again for listening to this show. Every single one of you means so much and we will see you again soon.